Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. We've got COVID, climate, chaos in the rush out of Afghanistan, plus cruelties of capitalism and a cultural rift in the heart of the country. Who are we by now? Who remembers a certain cool competence in the self-image of Americans? And who can imagine recovering it? Mariana Matsukato wants to tell you she can. Born in Italy, raised in the U.S., holding forth now from University College London. She's got an audience on both sides of the Atlantic. Her message is, we'll change our luck only by transforming ourselves with ideas and dreams at the grand scale of the emergencies in energy, jobs, health, and justice. When she speaks of a moonshot mission to change capitalism, she's evoking John F. Kennedy's promise to put a man on the moon in the 1960s. On the 2021 agenda, I'm asking Mariana Matsukato to grade our wins and losses in the struggle with COVID so far and the prospects in our struggle to save the climate. Both COVID-19 and climate change have really revealed just how unprepared we are at the level of our public sectors and our private sectors in terms of delivering pretty basic things, you know, personal protection equipment for our frontline workers who all of a sudden we called our essential workers while still underfinancing all the institutions they work in was not that hard to produce considering that we managed to get a man on the moon and back 51 years ago. How can it be that producing personal protection equipment, rolling out the vaccine Mm -hmm. globally, given that it's a global health pandemic, resolving the problem around the digital divide when all these kids have been locked down and hence not actually accessing their human right to education in an equitable way. All these are problems that are difficult problems, but if we actually cared about them, like we care about, say, winning a war, when we you know, put all sorts of efforts of governments and the private sector at a challenge like that, what I think it reveals is we just simply have not been treating these problems around our health systems, the digital divide, and health innovation as urgently as we have, say, our military industrial complex. Yeah, that's a big statement, and we'll come back to all of it, including the fact that we valorize military adventure. We valorize it and create the kind of implementation capacity on the ground to deliver on it. You know, we would never send, well, actually, Afghanistan just has proved otherwise. But anyway, you know, when DARPA, for example, or the U.S. Department of Defense funds drug innovation, which they do, it's not just the National Institutes of Health, they are very careful to actually design the contracts with, you know, big pharma kind of companies in such a way that they are sure that the soldiers on the ground actually get what they need. They see the problem, Mm. you know, through the kind of urgent lens of, you know, security and so on. Whereas when the National Institutes of Health have been putting $40 billion a year into the U.S. health innovation system, somehow then we get the prices wrong, right? So even though you have huge amounts of taxpayer funding, the prices of the drugs don't reflect that. We get Mm -hmm. the intellectual property rights wrong. So there's something about that this is actually a reflection of choice. It's not inevitable. There's nothing deterministic about getting things as wrong as we have. And I've been talking about, you know, mission economics and, a, and the need for an entrepreneurial state now for about 15 years. And my um, previous book called The Entrepreneurial State kind of unpicked the iPhone and showed that everything that makes our iPhones smart and not stupid 
actually was due to government financing of the internet, GPS, touchscreen display, uh, the Siri voice activated system, and so on. But that's not enough. We also then need to govern these publicly financed technologies, whether it's in health, whether it's in energy, mm. whether it's in you know, IT, information technology, in such a way that people actually benefit. We really need to reframe what government is for. It can't just be about putting money into the system during the pandemic, money into the system you know, in order to foster, say, an internet revolution. It has to also govern that system, what I call market shaping and market co-creation, not just market fixing, so that we have some sort of common good benefits as opposed to you know, just private profits. I want to stick with the COVID climate example, and mm -hmm. they're big. COVID, such a mixed record. We weren't sure of the lines between federal and state authority, for example. We didn't know how thin on the ground our public health system really was. We weren't prepared to deal with inequality questions, racial distinctions, all that sort of thing. At the same time, account for what's seen the great success, the very fast and effective development in private companies of a vaccine that worked, seemed to. Well, it's interesting you say that, and it's a pity that these vaccines have somehow taken the name of the private companies, right? You know, so people call it the, the Pfizer vaccine, the AstraZeneca oh, yeah. vaccine. Yeah, I got a Moderna. Yeah. yeah, so that itself is a storytelling problem. It's not just in this case, you know, does anyone know that Tesla got its first, you know, guaranteed loan from the government? No, they all think it was just Elon Musk's great genius. So this is a recurring problem. And it's not only that there was huge amounts of both public and private funding behind you know, all six versions of the vaccine, but the public finance for every single one of them actually came on really early. It's basically true in so many different sectors that it's the high risk, early stage, capital intensive phase of the innovation process that tends to be funded by the public sector. And later the private sector comes in. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just crazy that then the story we tell is as though the entrepreneurial risk-taking mm. bit is from the private sector. The other thing is how do you then govern those projects? You know, and vaccines are not all the same. There's different types of projects. So the AstraZeneca right. one, what's interesting is that because the project was with public researchers, right? Researchers at Oxford University. Oxford University is a public university. Most universities in Europe are public, by the way. Uh, you know, Oxford, Cambridge are state-funded. Mm. <laughs> Those researchers at Oxford and the state, which also funded a lot of that research through, you know, grants that the government gives all our universities here in the UK, they negotiated quite hard with AstraZeneca to make sure that the costs remain contained, that the intellectual property rights be structured in a particular way to foster collective intelligence, a wonderful word, whereas the Pfizer one didn't. And by the way, Pfizer is one of the most financialized companies in the world. I've been writing about Pfizer now for 10 years. Really? And it's not about bashing Pfizer. You know, Pfizer is, I'm sure, a great company that does great things. However, you can govern companies in different ways. And if you look at the amount of share buybacks, for example, that Pfizer has engaged with uh, historically, it shows that it really is a company that focuses a lot on its share price. <laughs> you know, mm. buying back your shares to boost your share price, stock options, and executive pay is a particular choice. I always come back to the fact that these are choices that we make both in governments and inside businesses. And it's not surprising that the choices they made around the pricing, around the intellectual property rights, the refusal to stick to some conditions that the World Health Organization is calling for is happening in a company that focuses on, you know, short-term profits and share prices. Mm. 
Mariana, if you're playing doctor, so to speak, and we are with the COVID case, playing doctor with the American economy in general, what do you do with the simple fact that Vietnam probably had the best record in the world, or one of them, in fighting COVID? They knew something. And certainly, Team Asia beat Team West, hands down, in effective responses to this crisis. Yes, and that also is extremely interesting. In fact, it was places like Vietnam, places like Kerala, a region in India, that actually yeah. did extraordinarily well compared to other regions in India. We know Kerala as, everybody says, the most successful communist country in the world, a, a province of India, but run on basically Marxist management, and it does incredibly well on all social scores. Yes, but again, it's because they actually invest in the capacity of not only their own public administration, which, by the way, is extremely important, given that many countries, mm -hmm. unfortunately, have started to outsource their capacity to the McKinsey's of this world, the consulting companies. This is actually going to be the focus of a, my next book that I'm writing. On, on, on the consulting companies, the McKinseyfication of the world? Exactly. And you could even, um, I was going to say, transform the I after that F into a U. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and it's not necessarily McKinsey's fault, right? I mean, why is it that governments, you know, have bought into this idea that at best they can fix markets and they're, they're there to regulate and enable someone else who's going to be doing the innovation and the interesting thing? Well, of course, you're not going to be investing then within your own public sector and public administration to be as creative as many private sector companies think they are, and hence go do, you know, masters in business administration in order to think out of the box and think about strategic management decisions, sciences and organizational behavior, all these great courses that managers take, and somehow civil servants instead get trained to, you know, fix the market, then get out of the way. So what is the mm. new curriculum that we actually require within our civil service in order to transform our bureaucracies to be much more dynamic, flexible, agile, and it's not that the word bureaucratic should be a negative word. We can have bad, inertial, vertical, mm. boring bureaucracies or creative, you know, out-of-the-box thinking, sexy bureaucracies. And, you know, places like Kerala and Vietnam, but also other countries. I mean, I've been working quite a bit now with Sweden and Denmark where they have their own innovation agencies within their governments precisely to rethink tools like procurement policy. How can you make government purchasing through procurement a dynamic funnel through which innovation happens in order for public services to be as innovative as possible, including things like school meals. Sweden has this amazing challenge of having a fossil-free welfare state, and that lands on things as concrete as how they think about school meals to be healthy, tasty, and sustainable, but that means procurement policy has mm. to be designed to kind of funnel and crowd in as many innovative solutions to deliver on those social goals within the public sector. And both Kerala and Vietnam, also for kind of local reasons, also tied to previous viruses, by the way, that they underwent, where they realized they also had to foster a more dynamic relationship between government, business, civil society, they made investments in that. So it's not surprising that, you know, the UK, which hasn't, ended up outsourcing its test and trace system to Deloitte, which, by the way, failed miserably. You know, we're not used to looking to East Asia for examples of how to run businesses, but it's absolutely inescapable at this point. It was Taiwan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand did remarkably well. If this had been an Olympic competition, we would have come home red-faced and there would have been new athletic directors in universities and cities and towns all across this country overnight. What would be the business equivalent of that kind of 
post-COVID chagrin in running the American economy. Well, it's not all of East Asia. These are particular countries that we mentioned before. Yeah, but a lot of them. A lot of them, yeah, but, you know, again... And authoritarian regimes, let's be real, too. That's a very good point, and that's why we should be careful, right? I mean, in the same way that Dubai, for example, you know, has some really interesting things happening at the government level, it's also not exactly one of the most democratic parts of the world. So we shouldn't glorify any particular country or region. What we need to do, and this is why I actually have set up a whole institute at University College London in order to foster this kind of learning, we need to start looking at the organizational level, what works, what doesn't. Coming up. How to fix a financialized economy. This is open source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is open source. Mariana Mazzucato, the political economist, is applying her moonshot mindset to our pretty oblivious responses, both public and private, to the crisis in the climate. Mariana, we're going to come back to the matter of applying the moonshot mindset to climate change. But first, I've got to ask you a very basic question. What is wrong with American capitalism, and how did it happen? We have this in our heads, the picture of a big infusion on the, in the space race of government money and lots of little companies, a lot of them we know, even in New England, who worked on it. But we live now, though we deny it often, in surveillance capitalism, Monopoly capitalism, I mean, the big five, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft capitalism, which buy out their prospective competitors as soon as they appear, this kind of thing. And the beneficiaries are flying around the, you know, orbiting around the world just for vacation. What went wrong? And is it time to unbundle, demonopolize, definancialize our economy? Well, the answer is definitely yes. <laughs> In other words, we can't keep picking up the mess and treating the symptoms of the problems we have. We need to go deep into the cause. And you've just listed off a lot of uh, very important words, <laughs> which, you know, hopefully uh, people understand. But, you know, Wh- which ones? Unpick finan- <laughs> well, financialization. We have both a financial sector that is financialized and a business sector that is financialized. So finance most of finance gets reinvested back into finance. So finance is financing finance. (laughs) What do I mean by that? Mm. Something like 80% of global finance goes back into finance, insurance, and real estate. FIRE. (laughs) FIRE is the acronym. And, you know, that's a problem. That is not uncorrelated with the fact that we end up with these huge financial bubbles. If all the money is going into, say, mortgages, getting people to buy houses they can't even afford because uh, real wages haven't increased for the last 30 years, Mm -hmm. right? But business itself has become financialized. Over $4 trillion have been used by the Fortune 500 companies just to buy back their own stock, to boost stock prices, to boost stock options, to boost, surprise, surprise, executive pay. That's a massive lack of reinvestment of profits into the economy. So anytime you hear anyone saying, robots are taking our jobs, you've got to say, what? The robots? (laughs) No, corporate governance is the problem, and that's a result of a choice. In fact, robots you know, which is the way we talk today about mechanization, have been taking jobs for 200 years. David Ricardo, the first ever economist back in uh, 1831, I think it was. Don't ask me how I remember these things when I don't remember what I did yesterday. But he, he was had Italian, a, that's why. Well, actually, he wasn't. <laughs> Just ah. had an Italian name. But he had the first ever economics book, Principles of Political Economy. It was actually chapter... 
31, I think it was. The chapter was called uh, On Machinery, and he already predicted that mechanization would replace jobs. However, what happened then for 200 years was that the profits that were being generated were reinvested back in, and that stops. So that then makes sure that we get new skills, new jobs, new sectors, and so on, even though in the short term, the technology might be displacing labor, as long as profits are reinvested back in, new jobs appear. That stops around 1980, precisely in the time that you get this kind of mm. Thatcherite, you know, Reaganite idea of you know, government just getting in the way, all this deregulation. But the big change is actually at the corporate governance level, this complete change of idea that you know, businesses are not there to help people have good jobs and to communities to prosper and foster long-run growth, but really just to serve their shareholders. So they started to be governed with this kind of ideology of maximization of shareholder value, which I can tell you more about, but I think that you know, speaks for itself. And so a lot of the practices that actually up until then had basically been illegal, all of a sudden themselves become deregulated. So the, the mm. SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, all of a sudden actually allows this massive use of stock buybacks just to maximize shares in the name of this is good for company growth, when actually it just increased inequality massively. The American pragmatist standard is all about what works, accountability, experimentation, judgment, analysis, and then moving forward. I associate it with William James, but I associate it with the American character. We like what works, and yet we militantly resist a sort of what worked test of our performance. How do we fire up? Well, I like your notion, Mr. Trump or Mr. Biden, Mr. anybody, but it didn't work. Yes, but we should remember that there isn't just one way to understand history or the present. Lens matters. Framing matters. Storytelling matters. I actually opened yep. up my, my book, The Value of Everything, with a great uh, quote by Plato. Storytellers rule the world. <laughs> so what kind of stories are we telling about history and hence our understanding of what works and what doesn't? Why is it, coming back to that Tesla example, given how much attention Elon Musk gets, that so few people know that, you know, Elon Musk for his three companies, SolarCity, Tesla, and SpaceX, got over $5 billion from the U.S. government, without mm. which a lot of that innovation wouldn't have happened. Why is it that everyone just remembers Solyndra, a solar-based company that went bust and the taxpayer had to pick up the bill because they received a $500 million guaranteed loan? Why don't people know that the same amount or just a bit less went to Tesla? You know, that was the portfolio of the Obama administration at the time. And just one last thing, why is it that Obama said to, or not Obama, it was the Department of Energy, said to Tesla, if you don't pay back the loan, we get 3 million shares in your company. That's not very smart. You want 3 million shares in a company that does well, not when they're doing bad. And had they gotten 3 million shares in Tesla when it did pay back the loan in 2013, the price per share between 2009 when it got the loan and 2013 when it paid it back went from 9 to 90. That difference multiplied by 3 million would have more than paid back the Solyndra loss mm. and the next round of investment. That requires looking at state funds as kind of an investor first resort, public venture capital fund that benefits people and doesn't just socialize risks and then privatize rewards. Who is not telling the right story and who's feeding these myths? Is it network television, which is of course corporate, or the big newspapers, corporate 
too, or is it social media? Where's the gap, and where do you start telling this story? I wonder if we have to read Gramsci again, Antonio Gramsci, and I'm Italian, so <laughs> maybe I'll get my kids to read them uh, over the Christmas break, <laughs> yeah. especially if there's another lockdown. They'll all have to read Gramsci. No. He talks about hegemony and control. Hegemony, exactly, hegemoniam, exactly. <laughs> it's not just one actor, and, and it's especially scary when the same people or organizations that are even doing really interesting things start buying into the story that's actually in some ways against them. I mean, that's where I sometimes say I walk into meetings with governments as an economist and I walk out as a life coach. Many civil servants hmm. almost need therapy <laughs> because uh. they've bought into, even when they're trying to do really great things, that's why many people enter government. They want to kind of you know deliver for public service. But if the narrative and the story that's being fed everywhere is the opposite, that all the entrepreneurialism, that wealth creation occurs inside business, and at best, government can redistribute that wealth, can uh, regulate and intervene, you know, for the good, not for the bad, at best do that, then of course, you will perhaps try to regulate properly and redistribute it properly, but you don't then really think, what does it mean to co-create, to co-shape markets? What is the capacity, the capability, the dynamism you require inside public institutions to do that? And by the way, business benefits, at least businesses that care about long-run growth and innovation, and if they want to partner with government, which most businesses do, they will benefit with, you know, by a smarter, more dynamic, more innovative government. And that's why I unpick the Apollo program. And I just find it so interesting that they cared about designing the public-private partnership in a functional, what I call a symbiotic way, not a parasitic way, which is what I think we get today in the health sector. So for example, Ernest Brackett, the head of procurement inside NASA in the early days of Apollo, he was very careful to redesign, restructure the procurement contract so it was not just cost plus where they had to you know, pay for anything that came their way, but fixed price with incentives. So it was almost like a prize scheme. And then there was constant incentives for innovation and quality improvement. They had clauses in the contracts with business that said no excess profits. In other words, we're all going to be co-investing. This should not become a gambling casino. And he also had this wonderful quote, which I've started using everywhere, where he said, and if we don't invest in our own brain, our own capabilities, mm. we're going to get captured by brochuremanship, you know, because at the time there was no PowerPoints. And so his <laughs> point was, we won't even know which business to work with because we won't even understand what's happening outside of our little silo which is, by the way, what I actually think has happened to many government organizations that haven't been making those dynamic investments in-house. Meantime, Congress has been financialized. American politics has been financialized. Presidential campaigns have been financialized. Media has been financialized. Is there any route back, Mariana, to what I vaguely remember from the 50s and 60s, smallish competitive companies owned by their stockholders in intense competition, and some of them thrived? On their own. I don't think we should romanticize this idea of kind of small family run or, you know, medium sized companies. It's actually not about size. Um, some things are about size. This is not about size. It is about governance. It was something smaller than Google, I'm thinking. 
that's a separate question, which is how did Google get so big? And if you start looking at both the deregulation, if you look at the tax avoidance, massive tax avoidance that lots of these companies, including Apple, have engaged in, and a lot of the practices, and you mentioned before surveillance capitalism, it sounds like you've had a Shoshana Zuboff on. We have indeed. That's fantastic. Yeah, so she says, you think you're searching Google for free. Well, guess what? <laughs> Google is searching you for free. <laughs> so anyway, you know, there's all sorts of things that could be illegal, but we've just chosen. I keep coming back to the fact we've chosen to do these things, which means we can unchoose <laughs> to do them. So it's not so much that these were small companies. It's also that they were governed in very different ways, both in terms of government regulation, but also in terms of corporate governance. There was this idea that you know people would be invested in also within these companies so that skills themselves were kind of endogenously created within companies. You didn't just need government training programs to deliver on really important training for workers. And so a lot of the hollowing out in some ways of the middle class that everyone talks about has been precisely due to that lack of investment in people that companies, as soon as they just worry about their short-term profits and share prices, start seeing that as a cost. To change that, we need, of course, much, much more proactive regulation, but we need to be careful in terms of the storytelling. Absolutely. It's not about the market is there and then you just have to regulate it to make it deliver on good things. The market itself is an outcome of a lot of this public investment that went into the economy, whether it's been with renewable energy, most of which today wouldn't be there without those early stage government investments. The internet and GPS, what would Google be, first of all, without the algorithm behind Google that was funded by the National Science Foundation and without the internet, (laughs) which was funded by DARPA, what would Uber be without GPS funded by the Navy? So we need to be careful every time we say regulation, think of it in this co-creation kind of mindset Why is it that DARPA inside the U.S. Department of Defense is so innovative in terms of, you know, having the ability to really attract top people that want to come into government, work inside government for five years, take risks, actually get measured, their success is measured by how much risk they were willing to take and how much kind of economy-wide impact the successes have. But they admit that you have to fail. You have to experiment. Mm. Something that most civil servants are told from day one, you better not do because if you fail, you will be on the front page of I live now in the UK, so I'll say the Daily Mail. I can't remember what the equivalent is in the East Coast and Boston or New York of, you know, uh, newspapers that will blame government for any problem. (laughs) And so there's something about organizational culture that we need to learn from. You know, what can we learn? Even, you know, in Israel, which, as we know, has all sorts of issues, they have a public venture capital fund or have had a public venture capital fund called YOSMA without which they would not be today what many call them startup nation. So the Mm. kind of admission that so many countries have pretended to be kind of market-led, but then under the radar have, you know, actually used some pretty radical public funds or public agencies, whether it's DARPA in the U.S., whether it's Yasma in Israel, whether it's Corfo in Chile, whether it's Citra in Finland. I'm I'm sure your listeners might not be familiar with these words, but the point is it's not just the U.S. Why don't we talk about this? You know, why don't we come out of the closet (laughs) and admit that actually most radical innovations and big transformational 
a transformational change is required, not only private sector initiative, yes, that's important, but also public sector capability, dynamism, and creativity. And when we don't have that, which we often don't have, and I'm from Italy, so I can tell you that, you know, I'm not someone who just glorifies government. We need to get government right. When we don't have that, it's really, really, really hard to tackle challenges, whether it's climate, whether it's COVID, whether it's Brexit, <laughs> you know, which is a political challenge, or whether it's the deep inequalities that we have in the United States that are kind of structural inequalities. There's a huge gap there in public conversation. It feels like we're being propagandized all the time. But come back, Mariana Mazzucato, to the fundamental premise in the conversation here that COVID is a rehearsal, a kind of qualifying round for this human contest with climate change. And I would love to hear from a moonshot mission mindset, what's got to be done to survive this change in our world? Maybe it's world government, but applying your criteria, what has to be done to make an effective fight against climate change, a fight that works? First of all, the, the challenges we have today are actually much, much harder than going to the moon. These are societal challenges that need not just technological change, but also regulatory change, behavioral change, and so on. Educational and humanistic change, too. Absolutely. I mean, that's what we mean when we use words like wicked problems, right? Wicked problems that if you look at the SDGs, the sustainable development goals that every country has signed up to, including the United States, including, you know, South Africa, including Brazil, and so on. No poverty, zero hunger, quality education, gender equality, and so on. So how do you transform these challenges? And climate change is SDG 13. Life below water, so clean oceans is SDG 14. How can we transform these challenges, which are really broad and sometimes don't really speak to people because they're just kind of too abstract, into moonshots? So what if you know, climate change, instead of just being this kind of thing that we fear, we could frame it as a positive thing of what to do. What can we do together differently? Not just what not to do, you know, don't pollute, fine. What do we do? Turn it into a very concrete goal, right? You know, going to the moon and back again in one generation was the mission. The mm. challenge was the space race. Had they just stopped at the idea of the space race, <laughs> nothing would have happened. So a mission mm. could be like 100 carbon neutral cities by 2030 in a specific, say, country right, or region. And second, what would that mean for all the different sectors that we need to transform and innovate in order to make that mission real? Because we shouldn't forget the Apollo program wasn't just aerospace. It required huge amounts of innovation and in nutrition, electronics, materials, software, and so on. Mm. And so with any sort of climate change mission, it would require investment innovation, obviously in renewable energy, yes, but also construction materials, real estate, food. It would require lots of behavioral changes. Mm. It would require changing how we deliver school meals that I mentioned before. And what was so interesting with the moon landing is that they changed how they did things. There was like 1,000 projects and homework problems that had to be delivered to get to the moon and back. What does that look like for climate change? What does it mean to transform how we do grants, loans, procurement, COVID-19 recovery bailouts to be conditional on getting business to really be making the kind of investments and innovation towards goals. I get the idea, and I love the idea of a 100-city competition to build carbon-neutral carbon yeah. big places. And you can imagine it. People do it on lesser things like, you know, who's got the best uh, bike paths or bike lanes yeah. in America, but it could be done comprehensively and with the ultimate simple test of carbon emissions from Indianapolis, say, 
or Tucson, as well as New York and Los Angeles. But the question I had all the way through your book is, these sound like wonderful ideas, but who takes the initiative? Where does it start? Does it start with the mm. mayor of Indianapolis, or does it have to start with the president of the United States? Does it start with your speech to the nation? Or is it going to happen maybe in France or maybe in Italy first? First of all, it has to happen through a vision. And the problem is, frankly, and it's a bit depressing, we often have and see political leaders that aren't at least expressing, they might have it, but it's not being expressed as boldly as it could be, a vision for transformational change. I mean, that's why this whole discussion globally, it's not just in the US, of a Green New Deal is very interesting because it requires not just the green bit, which as Greta Thornburg says, just listen to the science, it requires a deal, a new social contract. Coming up, seriously, who would you trust to write a social contract for you? This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. In our guest Mariano Mazzucato's idea of a social contract around big project capitalism, there would be lots of conditions and mutual obligations to be checked and enforced. Handouts and subsidies would not run one way. Congress and voters would have to see what they were getting back. And what we saw with COVID-19 was that some countries really took that on. So in France, the recovery funds given to Air France and Renault, a car manufacturer, were conditional on those companies committing to reducing their carbon emissions in the next five years. They didn't have to do it right away because they needed the funds right away, but they had to commit to it. Whereas in the UK, we gave a 600 million bailout to EasyJet with no conditions attached. Or even without looking at COVID-19 recovery, it was interesting that in Germany, only once they had a really ambitious green policy at the very high level, did they then transform their tools and instruments at the local level to deliver on that. So when the public bank in Germany received a request from the steel sector to basically get a bailout, because steel globally is asking government for bailouts, they made it conditional on steel lowering their material content, which they did through repurpose, reuse, recycle technology. And they now have the greenest, most sustainable steel production in the world, Hmm. not because they went to Davos and talked about purpose and stakeholder value, but because they had to in order to get one euro out of the government. So there's something about making sure that this isn't all just about individual initiative, but it goes to the core of public-private partnership and transforms what is often a parasitic partnership into a symbiotic and mutualistic partnership. This gets very emotional ultimately, but it's also about thinking. I'm wondering how you would kickstart a change in thinking in an American population that, in my observation, is more and more depressed about this stuff and should be scared about it, like climate change, but is not in a mood to act. Who moves first here? So I don't know if that's true, and it's interesting you say that. I mean, when I travel the world, and I remember really feeling this in Australia when I went there with a year before COVID hit, <laughs> I remember thinking that actually citizens and people that I was yep. speaking to yep. Uh, kind of civil society, I should say, was ready for, you know, big thinking around climate. And the politicians were still not in, in terms of really providing leadership. And the problem is that then if people only hear about the threats about global warming and then the changes that will be required, which might also feel like a threat to their jobs, to their sectors, and no one is really pushing forwards 
a positive reimagination of what society will look like in、mm. the new jobs, the new skills, the new sectors, the new types of partnerships that will be required, which can galvanize a whole new direction of growth. So it's not lack of growth and lack of jobs and lack of productivity. It's a fundamental shift. In the type of growth that we have, which must be then accompanied by investments in people, this is something that global trade unions call the just transition. Because as we transit to a greener economy, there's going to be lots of workers in the areas that are still based on fossil fuels that could potentially just be out of a job <laughs> if we just quickly move、mm-hmm. towards a green economy. What does it mean for both the public and private investments in people, and what often economists call human capital,、yep. to make sure that people transition in a just and sustainable way? So all of that requires, you know. Again, a story. We need to hear about it, but also in very practical ways. Otherwise, you get people in certain parts of the U.S. or in certain parts of the world that just really fear what a sustainable growth path will look like in terms of their job, hence their income, you know, their kids'、mm-hmm. <laughs> tuition bills when they're not bringing money at home because their sector all of a sudden has completely been transformed. So, we need both big thinking on this, but then it has to be explained, and then we need actual. Action. Walk the talk. Don't just talk it. Right. That people can understand. And I should also say it has to be inspirational. I mean, it's so interesting to me. And I've got four kids. They all know about one mission because it's been talked about at a global level in an inspiring way. And that's the plastic-free ocean mission.、Mm. Why? Because David Attenborough, fantastic documentary maker, made a documentary called Blue Planet. Recently, that many kids globally have seen and adults as well, where the last episode had all these dolphins and you know sea animals choking and dying、mm. because of all the plastic in our oceans. It spoke to people in the same way, you know, in the documentaries about the Apollo program. We saw the people in the streets looking up and kind of inspired, which then got a lot of kids to want to study STEM subjects, the hard sciences. There's something about also making sure that. The kind of creativity through which we are reimagining the future together speaks to people, and I go back to the school meal example I gave before in Sweden. What's interesting is if an ambition like healthy, tasty, sustainable school meals not only requires procurement to change, but also gets kids involved. They can learn about it through the curriculum, through lots of different you know courses. They can become involved in creating or helping to design a healthy, tasty,、uh, sustainable meal. So it's not just IKEA meatballs.、Uh, <laughs> so participation, participation of people. In this, so it's not just top down. And you know, the Apollo mission was top down, and maybe for those kinds of missions, it's okay. But for these societal ones that we've been discussing, you definitely need much more citizen participation. And recently, some of the city level work I've been doing, it's very interesting how that's easier actually at the city level. I believe in the people and their judgment, especially young people, especially minority people, especially people who are not heard from in our media. But I got to come back to the fact that. We're a divided society at this point, and even the kids, I think, have lost confidence or access or belief in political processes. I'm thinking also, for example, Adam Tooze, a wonderful writer on on these subjects. He says we've entered a state of dangerous incoherence. The separate understandings of our world have become so divergent and so entrenched. Think Fox News and MSNBC, for example, so entrenched that they pose their own existential threat. Who's our leader? What kind of person, besides Greta,、yeah. <laughs> can get our attention and cut through the Congress, for example? 
I think I'm more optimistic in some ways, and maybe I'm just naive. I hope not, but I do think we can choose to undo so much of the harm that we've done, which is literally also at the capacity level. We need to build capacity in order to govern these systems mm. differently. So it requires leadership, you know, Rooseveltian leadership, because you remember that Roosevelt also talked about the importance of experimentation. He said, just try for God's sakes, right. <laughs> you know? So that need to try and experiment and reimagine is important, but to do what? If there's no vision of what this is all for, it becomes really hard. In the UK, for example, they've been rethinking government structures, but there's very little vision of what we're trying to do beyond Brexit right now. So there's no justification or real need to transform government if actually the vision at the top is not that inspirational. So you know, your, your constant point about leadership is definitely right, but that doesn't happen in a vacuum. I come back to the sustainable development goals, which actually weren't uh, delivered top down. They were negotiated globally, but then they've just been sitting there. And the problem is that unless we learn how to create a trajectory, a pathway to achieve them, they're simply not going to happen. And mm. that's why I always go back to the fact that we need to redesign industrial policy, innovation policy, to be purpose-oriented, mm. mission-oriented. Most industrial strategy globally, including in the U.S., has been over time simply just kind of money given out to random sectors, life sciences, automobiles, steel, high-tech, digital this, digital that. To do what? So that's the big question. I do think, though, that we can't afford to constantly just criticize and be pessimists. We have to come up with roadmaps not simplistic ones. We can't pretend things are easy. I keep reminding us that you know these social problems are more wicked and harder than going to the moon. And you said something really important before, which is you know the Black Lives Matter movement, yes. the Me Too movement, Fridays for the Future movement. Let's not forget that movements are what got us a, a more acceptable form of capitalism, as messed up as it continues to be. You know, without the labor movement, we wouldn't have the weekend. The weekend's not a bad social innovation, right? <laughs> uh, we wouldn't have the eight-hour workday. We wouldn't have had the best of Franklin Roosevelt. Exactly. And, you know, the civil rights movement and so Amen. on. So there wasn't all that much consensus back then either. The Moon and the Ghetto, you know, a great book that Dick Nelson wrote about a great economist at Columbia University. And you'll remember that um, Gil Scott Heron, uh, you know, wrote this amazing poem, Whitey's on the Moon. A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her, Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's, Whitey's on, on the moon. moon. I can't pay no doctor bills, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. You know, the man just up my rent last night because Whitey's on the moon. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. I wonder why he's up in me because Whitey's on the moon. Well, I was already giving him 50 a week, and now Whitey's on the moon. You know, so that was that was a call to action. Thank you, Gil Scott Heron. <laughs> exactly. I always go back to the alternative example in the line of Harold Macmillan, then Prime Minister of England. Somebody asked him, well, you know, what changes the direction in this situation? He said, events, my dear boy, events. In other right. words, what if it takes Chicago flooded out forever or the polar caps actually melting? to bring us to our senses. Yeah, and are we actually going to have to wait to be locked down <laughs> until we take climate change really seriously, you know, literally flood it out? And we still have a couple years left, and it's not that many years if you read the IPCC report, which came out early 
August this year, the International Panel for Climate Change. They already uh, in 2019 said we had 10 years left before climate change is irreversible. We've got eight years left. That is not much, mm. <laughs> right? So let's not wait until it's irreversible and we're going to be forced into action. We can still be very creative in terms of how we you know, address this problem because you know, there was different ways to get to the moon. The fact that so many different spillovers happened along the way, if you think about the you know, incredible innovations that occurred precisely because the moon landing was governed in that dynamic way through NASA, directing the show, but not micromanaging it, you know, camera phones, mm-hmm. athletic shoes, home insulation, baby formula, the software sector. These were all spillovers from this incredibly ambitious and creative project. That's what we need today with climate change. You know, we need really mm-hmm. bold targets. We need to go after them together throughout society, public, private, third sector partnerships, but it has to be governed in a particular way to be both, you know, serious about the target, not just waffle Mm. about it, as my kids use that word all the time, you're just waffling. Uh, But also it's not going to deliver all these interesting spillovers if we don't also get creative on how to make sure that the grants, the loans, the subsidies, and so on that I keep going on about procurement doesn't really then crowd in bottom-up solutions. You talked about small and medium enterprises before. They will be very important, but they need to be rewarded for investing in these particular areas. They shouldn't be micromanaged in terms of how to do it because that'll kill innovation, but there should be a tilting of the playing field and helping companies really deliver on these targets. And that's how government policies should be structured, not just random subsidies, guarantees, and you know bailouts for companies to stay in place and to continue to be happy with the status quo. Mariana, there's one other big gap, I think, in our knowledge day to day, and that is what other countries are doing and how they're succeeding. I mean, I would love to know more about initiatives, innovation in Italy, for example, but it could be Japan with a humanistic base in the goal, a sense of our shared stewardship of the planet, but a real action program that may well be ahead of us now or in the future. Who should we be watching out there? Well, unfortunately, since the Renaissance, Italy has uh, not necessarily gone <laughs> for We need Leonardo <laughs> again. <laughs> no, I mean, and again, that's on the back of certain choices that have been made, which, you know, that would be a whole other program. Get me back on to talk about Italy. I'd be happy to do that. But one thing which I often say is don't ask which country is doing it all right look at you know, what's happening in particular countries where things are going really interestingly, and let's then start scaling up those lessons and ask what it means if we actually systemically learn from that. So for example, in Denmark, what I have found so interesting is that you know, Denmark is tiny. I can't, it's really small, mm. right? I don't think the greater London metropolitan region is any bigger. So Denmark is today the number one provider of high-tech green repeat, green digital services to China. And China's spending, mm. even pre-COVID, $5 trillion in greening its entire economy. So imagine a small country <laughs> being the lead provider to China's green transformation. You know, where did that come from? Mm. And it's just so interesting to trace back where it came from. And it came from city-level policy. So Copenhagen decided it wanted to be the greenest city in Europe. And they had a startup scene. But instead of just obsessing about startups, you know, who cares about a startup? How do you help it scale up? It's the scaling up process that matters. And the fact okay. that they had really interesting 
policies at the city level, but also at the national level. They also had national manufacturing capacity around green, so renewable energy companies like Vestas. But the services, the green digital services that the startups provided was in the first instance because the country and the cities were kind of demanding it and they were fueling kind of a demand funnel through which if you were then providing for those new types of targets that they were going after, you could then benefit from that kind of market creation exercise. And so using both the supply side and the demand side tools that government has to help scale up companies that can deliver on really important social and public goals That again, coming back to your point before, requires a vision, but also redesign of the tools. And they did it. And then all of a sudden, Mm. they were able to sell those services, you know, and that helps their own growth trajectory to China. And China itself is interesting. I'm not there to glorify China. I know absolutely there's really important human rights abuses that people and governments need to be aware of. But it is interesting that they've taken pollution, which is huge in China, very seriously. And it's not than just you know, an investment in renewable energy. They have a whole strategy around green IT and energy-friendly technologies. They're walking the talk. And they've also started to learn from the United States at the same time that up until recently, the US was unlearning its own history. So at the same time that Trump was defunding organizations like ARPA-E, uh, China looked at Silicon Valley, understood, in fact, they looked at what the U.S. did to deliver Silicon Valley and realized they needed that decentralized network of different types of public institutions to be lead investors alongside their emergent private sector, whereas some countries just completely buy the myths around Silicon Valley, which is, oh, you just need to fund some basic science and then venture capital will do the rest. (laughs) And then surprise, surprise, Mm. nothing happens because venture capital in the United States has piggybacked on huge amounts of public investments. And when you don't have that level of ambitious public investment, you can get all the venture capital in there that you want. Nothing happens. Mariana Mazzucato, this is such fun and interesting stuff. I want to talk again and again about addressing climate change with a kind of emergency drive, but also a humanistic foundation and a pragmatist mentality. What works? We're in deep trouble. Everybody knows it. There is a kind of prevailing disbelief out there, a bad mood about tackling things this big, but it's got to be done. And we'd love to hear you again on the subject. Thank you. I'd love that. Happy to come back. Physically, perhaps, one day. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that when be When we nice? can all fly again. Yes. Mariana Mazzucato teaches political economics at University College London. Her new book is Mission Economy, A Moonshot Guide to Changing Capitalism. Please think of supporting the hardest working team in radio. You can leave a tip at radioopensource.org or by becoming a monthly subscriber on Patreon where you'll find a growing audio library of conversations on all sorts of subjects. Find it at patreon.com slash radioopensource. Our show this week was produced by Adam Coleman and George Hicks with engineering help from the WBUR production team. Mary McGrath runs our mission control. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit audio collective 
creating some of the smartest podcasts you'll find anywhere. This week, check out The Lonely Palette, the show that returns art history to the masses, one painting at a time. Host Tamar Abishai collaborated with the Harvard Art Museums to tell the story of Painting Edo, an exhibit about pre-modern Edo Japan that closed in early 2020 after being open for just five weeks before COVID hit. You can listen to The Lonely Palette at thelonelypalette.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find everything Hub & Spoke has to offer at hubspokeaudio.org. Hub & Spoke. Audio Collective.